Hello, and welcome to At Length with Steve Share. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Drop me a line at length with Steve Share at gmail.com. At length with Steve Share, all one word. Share is S C H E R. So last time I recommended that you might quaff a beer while you listened to my interview with Devin Brisky about her book, Beeronomics How Beer Explains the World. Perhaps this time you might want to indulge in a little herb. It's legal, you know, in the state where I am podcasting from. Washington State, also in Oregon, also in California, and many other states. But then again, it's illegal in many states and around the world. And our own federal government is not so sure that they're going to go along with all these uh, legalization efforts. That's the history of marijuana. It rises and falls and rises and falls in public popularity, in legal popularity, and in public perception about its safety. Emily Dufton is an historian. She's written about marijuana. It was originally her PhD thesis. Grassroots, the rise and fall and rise of marijuana in America. Have a listen. We spoke by Skype. Hello, Emily. Hey, Stephen. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. There's another book. It's called Beeronomics, How Beer Explains the World. And and, oh, and she wrote about sort of the political and the economic transformation that beer brought to a bunch of different um, economies and economies of scale. And it got me thinking, since the subtitle of this book is The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America, is there any similarity between the way America has perceived and treated alcohol, we've had our own prohibitions, and the way we perceive and treat marijuana? Oh, yeah. I've, I've thought about that quite a bit. And, you know, it's alcohol is really the only analogy for the continued prohibition for uh, of marijuana. But what's particularly interesting about alcohol is that during the 13 years that we enacted prohibition, both its beginning and its end were achieved through constitutional amendments. And that's really quite extraordinary, right? As soon as you enact and then basically... Uh, not deny, but end prohibition through a constitutional amendment, there's the arguments over its legality or illegality come to an end, right? It is it is there. It's, it's, it's in the Constitution. Marijuana, of course, is quite different in that there's always this ongoing confrontation between its continued federal illegality since 1970 and that it's constant flux, it's constant state of flux on the state level, uh, from our experiment with decriminalization in the 1970s to the beginning of medical marijuana laws in 1996, to, of course, now federal, or excuse me, state-based legalization from 2012 on. There is nothing similar to it. There is no other substance that has gone back and forth um, and has had the pendulum swing on public opinion um, as widely as marijuana has. It is entirely unique and sui generis in that sense. I was struck by something you were writing about that I had never really thought about. And, and I guess, and again, this sort of relates to the rise and fall and rise of alcohol, the, what you call the paraphernalia industry that sort mm. of, that took root in the sixties and seventies, how, how influential and also like how much money was involved with that industry? It was huge. It really was huge. Uh, so the paraphernalia industry kind of formed, I would say, after 
Oregon, which was the first state to decriminalize in 1973, and then particularly in 1974 after High Times formed um, and quickly became a nationally recognized magazine. So as soon as you had decriminalization laws starting to spread nationwide, and then you had High Times and a series of imitators start to be published, which had a lot of opportunities for national advertisement, the paraphernalia industry really boomed. I mean, the 70s were tough on the American economy. You had gas lines, you had stagflation, you had um, basically the beginning of deindustrialization. And one of the few growth areas was in the paraphernalia market. So by 1977, paraphernalia manufacturers are pulling in 250 million bucks a year, which in today's money is 1 billion, which is crazy. 1 billion in sales of paraphernalia. And of course, that ultimately also creates the downfall of the market because in a system of decriminalization as opposed to legalization, you don't have a system of regulation and oversight. So they're creating these products like, you know, bongs that are shaped like spaceships and pipes that are in Frisbees. And even though they're not being marketed specifically to kids, it's very easy to suggest that they are. And of course, rates of adolescent marijuana use are rising during this time. So the correlation is just a little bit too close to deny. Yeah, that's it. But it also meant that uh, with high times, with groups like normal, there was money to sustain um, a lobbying effort or even an effort to change um, people's minds through through media. Yeah, totally. Uh, High Times had a ton of subscribers, as did all of the other magazines, Stone Age, Stone, Head, things like that. And Normal was kind of on like the, the NPR model at that time. You know, it had members um, who would donate annually or monthly or whatever. And so it, it, it created this system where people felt like a really personal involvement in the decriminalization and legalization movement of the era, which is, I think, what inspired so many activists of the time to think, my God, legislation or legalization's around the corner, right? Like, we're winning. <laughs> I send money to normal. I gave them 10 bucks, right? We're winning. Um, without realizing that with their support, with 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 ultimately their, their financial bulwark of this industry, um, it was actually kind of paving the path for their downfall as well. Let me take a step back a minute. When when was marijuana not criminally sanctioned in this country? Well, you have to go back kind of far. So even in the late 19th century and even in the mid-19th century, marijuana tinctures, cannabis tinctures were available in pharmacies. Um, it was well known as... Um, a pain reliever as an antiemetic, as this thing that could help with nausea. Um, and what kind of first threw a wrench in the works was the 1906 Pure Food and Drug Act, which required anyone who was making a pharmaceutical product to label it accordingly. And marijuana at that time was sort of known as a narcotic. So those with the rising tide of, pro, of uh, progressivism and um, and ultimately what would result in prohibition, people were very worried about giving these intoxicants to their children or to their families. And marijuana kind of faded from view. Hemp, of course, was always very powerful and very useful, but marijuana itself was always suspicious, not only because 
it was being you know sold in corner stores but because it's recreational use smoking it was mostly being done by lower class whites and latino immigrants and african americans particularly in the southwest so there is an inherently racialized component of its history as well from the beginning um, so the Treasury Department starts to target it. Ultimately, the Treasury Department will form the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, the DEA, et cetera. Um, so there is a questioning of who is using marijuana and why from the early 20th century on. But states were still allowed to come up with their own marijuana laws, and some states were far stricter than others until the 1970 Controlled Substances Act comes around. Nixon and his attorney general, John Mitchell, are really pushing Congress to put all drugs into those five schedules, the five schedules that we're all quite familiar with now, one through five, which rate a drug based on its potential for um, abuse and its medical utility, one being considered the most dangerous and least medically useful, and five being the most medically useful. And in 1970, no one really knew not much about pot, right? Like we didn't really know the effects, we didn't really know anything about it. But it was Nixon, because of marijuana's association with the counterculture, and of course the people who are protesting his presidency, who's really pushing to get pot into a Schedule One position. And he says that it'll be temporary pending the results of the Schaefer Commission, which the CSA, the Controlled Substance Act, also forms. But it's never been changed. Um, states, of course, still have the potential to create their own laws. So that contrast and that dichotomy was kind of worked into it from the beginning. And the mandatory minimums that we associate with marijuana weren't actually enacted until the 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act that was passed in the wake of the crack um, epidemic. But still, what we understand now as this federal antagonism towards marijuana is a relatively recent phenomenon. Were you at all surprised in studying this, how racialized and class-focused uh, these crackdowns were? Well, nothing surprises me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the 1960s and 70s, I would say that was kind of the one time where the battle against marijuana wasn't inherently racialized, but it was definitely targeted to youth. It was definitely targeted against the counterculture. It was definitely targeted against anyone who was you know, protesting the Vietnam War or agitating for civil rights. So in that way, it is kind of racialized, but but not as much as we think it is today. But um, drug wars are always inherently class and race-based because there are always the people whose drug use will be ignored or tacitly accepted. And there are always people who are going to be ultimately incarcerated and punished for drug use. Um, Michelle Alexander, in her 2010 book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, makes this argument way better than I ever could. But it's a, it's a, really, tricky, it's a really tricky system. Yeah. Well, it, it makes me think about how um, the efforts by Jeff Sessions will relate to the opioid crisis, which has now got many legislators freaked out. Totally. And, and Jeff Sessions, like renewal of the war against marijuana at this point when you have what 64,000 overdose deaths last year over 40 or 50,000 of those were from opioids specifically like decriminalization laws passed in the 70s after we had a period of intense heroin addiction uh, which lasted from about uh, 1967 to 1976 so in the wake of that heroin abuse crisis 
all of a sudden, you know, pot doesn't seem that bad. Of course we can decriminalize it. Pot becomes dangerous in the late 70s and early 80s because there's no other more dangerous drug knocking it off of the headlines until, of course, the crack epidemic rolls around in 1986, knocks marijuana from the headlines, crack becomes the demon drug in America, and becomes intensely racialized and, and intensely feared. And that's what paves the way for, well, that and the HIV AIDS crisis paves the way for marijuana to be recognized as a palliative substance for chemotherapy, for glaucoma, for issues with HIV AIDS. And that shifts then again, and you see actual attempts for full recreational legalization as America enters into a full-blown opioid abuse crisis. So usually, historically, right, marijuana's relationship with the American public is always on this pendulum that swings back and forth, depending on if we're abusing another drug at the same time. And if we are, pot becomes acceptable. And if we aren't, pot becomes demonized. But right now, we're abusing another drug, and Sessions is still going against pot, which makes me really question his, you know, political motivations as opposed to his, you know, concerns for public health and safety. Well, relate those, what you think might be his political motivations back to the the rise and fall and rise of marijuana. And, and we'll, so we'll circle back around to Sessions because you, you talk about how a parent's movement, it was parents worried about mm -hmm. its effect on their children as they saw those Frisbees and those rocket ships uh, shaped bongs showing up in their kids' bedrooms. The parent movement was one of the most powerful grassroots activist movements in American history. And um, you may not agree with them, but it's hard to deny their power. They were, they took the idea of consciousness raising from second wave feminism and enacted it to a system that spread nationwide in the matter of months and years because so many parents were freaked out because their kids were starting to smoke this substance. They didn't know what the effects of it were on young bodies. And the only information they could get was from the federal government. And it was horrifying, right? It was saying that boys were going to grow breasts and young girls were going to be rendered infertile and generations were going to be impaired by this drug. It was really scary. Not true, ultimately, of course, but really scary. And so parent groups start to form first in Atlanta, and then they spread nationwide to basically prevent their kids from using drugs. And in the original literature, they only really wanted to prevent their kids from using pot until they were 18. And they were ready to make their own decisions. But of course, it gets blown out of proportion when the Reagan administration gloms onto these ideas because Nancy Reagan is deeply unpopular when her husband is elected and needs a platform to endear her to the American public. Now, that's a different situation than today. Um, by 1979, you know, 11% of high school seniors were smoking pot every day, and children as young as 13 were reporting that the drug was easy to get. Right now, adolescent marijuana abuse is not a national concern. In legalized states, rates of adolescent marijuana use have either stayed steady or declined, right? Because legalization prevents kids from getting the drug. There are bouncers in front of dispensaries. Uh, the drug is really expensive because of high levels of taxation. And also it's like, it's not cool <laughs> to smoke pot when your parents are doing it. <laughs> you know? So the rates of adolescent use are dropping. Um, but Sessions' larger goals, as I kind of said before, I believe are politically motivated. 
partially because he's in the pocket of the private, private prison industry, partially because the Trump administration seeks to overturn any remainder of Obama's legacy. And the Cole memo, of course, is a part of Obama's legacy. And also because he's just been totally against this drug and this is something he can do. I believe it's more saber rattling than anything else. 95% um, of drug arrests occur on the state level, not the federal level. Um, so it's kind of a show of force that is ultimately impotent, but he's doing it because he can and because he has a decades long history of being opposed to this drug and because he's, well, he's Jeff Sessions, you know, what did we expect? <laughs> it does, but the federal government does have some um, tools that they can use if they wanted to uh, um, push back against the states like Oregon, like Washington, right? Uh, where, where pot is legal, they'll face lawsuits, but they still do have some power if he really wants to get involved. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I, I'm not trying to make light of what could be a very serious situation. Um, you know, it takes, I think you have to have 100 kilograms of marijuana on you to get five years um, mandatory minimum sentence, according to federal law. Now, that's that's about 220 pounds, which is a lot for, I think, the average person. But for a dispensary owner or for a grower, that's not. Um, so there is a sense of fear and there is a sense of, of, of worry. But what we have seen lately is a bipartisan coalition of congressional representatives coming to defend legalization laws in their states. Um, ultimately, the DOJ will have to use state attorneys to prosecute people. And most state attorneys are suggesting that they are not interested in doing this. And the DOJ and the DEA is already spread really thin because of the opioid crisis and because, well, the federal budget might expire on January 19th, so there's not a lot of money for them. Um, but it will be, it, it's problematic and it's scary, but to actually put a lot of money into this issue, Sessions is gonna have to finagle a transformation of the budget in, in, in at, by the end of this month. You know, it's interesting. One thing about the parents' movement that I didn't know from reading your book that I that I thought was interesting was that Joan Brand, and that the Just Say No movement orig originated with this local uh, Oakland activist, and then pretty quickly gets co-opted by the Reagan administration and a and a and a tie-in with a with a corporation. What was going on there? Oh man, it's crazy. It's it's so. It's so nuts and it's so kind of sad because I see Joan Brand as a real hero, as a community activist who was really trying to do good <laughs> and really trying to serve the children of her neighborhood and kind of got screwed by the Reagan administration. Um, as you said, yep, she was an activist in Oakland, born and raised, um, had a husband, a couple of kids and uh, became one of like the social directors for the city of San Francisco and, and just really rose up the political ranks um, and also the, the community involvement ranks. She was a real supporter of African-American cultural pride. I mean, Oakland is also the home of the Black Panthers. This is, this is an area that has very strong um, African-American heritage ties. She goes to DC for a little bit and she works in a bunch of different offices doing a bunch of different things. But she gets called back to Oakland in the mid 80s. Um, her husband dies. She inherits the house she grew up in. And, you know, she just feels like it's time to return. And when she returns, Oakland is a very different place. 
there is a lot of drug abuse. There's a lot of open air drug dealing. And she becomes very concerned for the safety and security of the kids in her neighborhood who are walking to school while, you know, cops are chasing down dealers, um, sometimes through her backyard. So working with a couple of teachers and students, she forms the first Just Say No Club out of the children's own ideas. Like, why don't we form a club after school that we can all go to? And it's like this safe, nice place where we can kind of get away from what's going on outside. And it can just be this, it can be ours. And she works with um, a parent activist, uh, a white parent activist named Tom Adams in a nearby town. And he's like, this is great. But Tom Adams also has connections to Washington. And he says, hey, Nancy Reagan, we're doing all these great things here in Oakland. Why don't you come support us and give us a little boost? Which she does. And that ultimately forms the downfall of Just Say No. Reagan co-ops that thing so fast. <laughs> and it becomes, you know, Just Say No becomes the rallying cry of the 1980s. And it totally loses its connection to Oakland. It totally loses its connection to the kids. It totally loses its connection to the African-American community. And it becomes like the Reagan's response to drug use in all of America for adults too, which is of course patently absurd, right? Just say no becomes the solution for drug use, which is, which is just silly. And Procter and Gamble gets involved through Nancy Reagan's immersion in the program. Joan Brand and Tom Adams subsequently get kicked off of the board of directors. They lose their, their um, control of the organization. PNG puts in its own people. And all of a sudden, you have just say no advertisements thrown on everything from paper towels to brownie mix. And it becomes little more than a marketing slogan, uh, totally devoid and separated from its, its very radical community service origins. It's, it's kind of a tragedy story. <laughs> Because I do, in reading this book, I do feel that you, you're you pretty careful to show respect for the the parents' movements because of the fact that they were a grassroots effort and they were concerned about something that, you know, it, it should not be dismissed cavalierly. I really appreciate that because I, I talked to a lot of parent activists and so many of them were these diehard liberal Democrats who, who really feel as though what they started in the 1970s got destroyed as soon as the White House got involved in the 1980s. Um, it was not this, you know, completely prohibitionist, awful, do not have any fun, never do, never do anything ever again movement. That's not the way it, it originated. It was through the concern of parents who just, you know, they didn't want their 12-year-old smoking pot, which is, um, I think, a pretty reasonable request, you know? Yeah. Tell me something. <laughs> Part of the argument for legalization in Washington state, for example, was that with that uh, money would come a focus on better research and that there will be money put into research. Colorado says they're doing it. Oregon says they're doing it. You know, we're going to put money into research to actually understand its effect. And we, and we are, we do have better science now. And we do know that a developing mind, a teenage developing mind is, it could be affected by by smoking pot because the brain is still developing just as they're affected by alcohol and, you know, too much sugar and too much milk, depending on your, <laughs> what do you, how, how confident do you feel in talking to the folks and in doing this reporting that that aspect of the, uh, of the promise, you know, that part of the contract that we are going to do a better job of, of on the public health side of things is being 
followed and fulfilled. Well, I, I mean, I think it's it's so great that that was written into these new legalization laws. I think it's huge and I think it's important, but I think you get really you get really screwed by marijuana's ongoing schedule 1 position. Because it's a schedule 1 drug, because the federal government continues to uh, boost its illegality, it's very difficult to do a lot of research that's going to be accepted by Health and Human Services, by the National Institute of Drug Abuse, by the DEA, um, by the Department of Justice, and things like that. There are a lot of research um, resources that can be done at the state level, but how many of them will ultimately work to convince the federal government? I'm not sure. Um, in 1973, in the wake of, I guess it was published in 1974, in the wake of Oregon's decriminalization law, Nor Normal and the Drug Abuse Council uh, paid for a huge survey of Oregon residents. Um, a year after, so of course it was 1974, a year after decriminalization was enacted to see how their habits had changed and things like that. And they found that decriminalization hardly made the sky fall. Um, people had actually decreased their use of marijuana. They didn't ask why, but it had decreased. Kids weren't using it as much, things like that. There have been attempts to do this research for a long time, uh, but it's also very difficult to do a control group uh, study, right? Do you do you give a bunch of marijuana to pregnant women and ask them to smoke every day of their gestation and see what the effects are? I mean, it's 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 just really tricky when you have an intoxicant like this. So I feel as though anyone who's trying to do a really organized scientific study on marijuana and its effects, I mean, hey man, they have my blessing. Go for it. But it's it's such a hard. <laughs> it's such a hard thing to do, and it's so difficult to get those uh, results approved and accepted by anyone in the federal government. With the people that you've spoken to who are in this new industry, this and you know, as big as the paraphernalia industry was, this industry now is the millions and billions of dollars that are involved are yeah. surely going to be very powerful. Do you have a sense of that, you know, as you titled the book, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America, is there a possibility of another fall or are are the economic forces um, so entrenched now that that marijuana will roll legalization will roll across the country as it as it seems to be doing now? What do you think? Well, you know, historians are not known to be optimists. <laughs> and so <laughs> we know too much. We've seen too much. But um, I'm always skeptical, I guess I should say. Um, and I'm actually working on an article about this right now, but particularly because there are also a lot of economic forces working against legalization. Um, pharmaceutical manufacturers who create opioids are funneling millions of dollars into the anti-legalization fight because in states that have legalized recreational or medical marijuana, rates of prescriptions for opioids have dropped considerably. So they're looking out for their bottom line. There's also a lot of problems um, with state-based legalization when the drug remains federally illegal. Um, people who are growing cannot insure their crop because marijuana remains a Schedule One substance. So that 200,000-acre wildfire in Northern California last year 
destroyed millions of dollars worth of marijuana. And none of those farmers can claim anything on their insurance. They're, they just experienced a total loss. It's a huge financial gamble to grow pot um, because marijuana remains federally illegal um, and banks are mostly federally controlled. It's hard to use the banking system. Now there are private banks rising up to meet this need, but those are tricky because you don't have FDIC insurance. So it's a little scary to bank with them. You can't traffic the drug interstate because it's federally illegal. So what happens when a state like California, which already grows more than it consumes, starts to grow more, prices drop, right? Um, and then, of course, there's the fact that marijuana is so heavily taxed when it's recreationally legal. And that pushes people back to the black market when they don't want to pay 25% tax on the drug. It's um, nothing is simple and <laughs> nothing is clear. I am always reticent to make any premature conclusions about legal, uh, legalizations, um, permanence or non-permanence. I'm, I'm very much so in the wait and see camp and, and comment on it as it goes along. <laughs> I, I find that fascinating that you're still in the wait and see camp. Because, I mean, in some ways, I mean, we live in a little bubble up here in the Northwest. And it seems like, oh, well, we've arrived. Canada, Washington, Oregon, now California. But Yeah, a whole West Coast, yeah. Yeah, but in but in a sense, you you can see the forces arrayed, and of course, there's also the fact that there are pharmaceuticals that would like to um, be able to control what's in marijuana in a way that they would sell it in pill form rather than as a plant. You I mean you end mm -hmm. the book talking about one of the activists who said, "Look, come on, it's just a plant," but of course, it's <laughs> it's so much more, isn't it? Oh, it's so much more. It's so much more. But I, as soon as Lanny Swerdlow said that to me, I was like, boom, there it is. There's the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe he's right. Um, <laughs> all right. I appreciate, I appreciate the work you did and I appreciate you talking to me. I, I, I really do. Oh, well, thank you so much. This was really fun. And I can't wait to come out to Seattle at the end of this month. All right. <laughs> all right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. That was Emily Duft and her book, Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. She'll be talking about it at Town Hall Seattle at the end of this month. Do check out Town Hall Seattle's website for information about times and places. You know, right now, Town Hall is refurbishing its buildings, so it's all over the city of Seattle, presenting different authors and thinkers. You might also check out the other podcast that I do with Town Hall. It's called In the Moment. Ginny Palmer and I excerpt some of the interesting speakers who have been at town hall or town hall venues the preceding two weeks from when the podcast drops. And then I excerpt an interview from an upcoming appearance by an author. So check out In the Moment, won't you? And thank you again for subscribing to this podcast. I hope to hear from you. We'll be back again. Take care. <laughs>